Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me go ahead and uh, pray for the message. Father, we look to you today as we begin to work our way through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring your word to life for us. God, that you would speak to the deepest parts of our hearts and our lives, for we need you, God, so desperately. And it's my prayer, it's our desire, God, that you would meet with us here as you have given us your word to that end so that we could know you in a, in a greater way and commune with you to fellowship with the triune God through the living word. And so I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in our study today and that the, the people of this church will be greatly edified as we dig into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So we thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's interesting about this book is there's five chapters, and Paul doesn't even really get to the point until chapter 4. And so he spends three chapters uh, just really laying out his love for that church. And chapter 1, he just boasts about what God is clearly doing in their midst and just what an awesome church they are. And in chapter 2, he spent some time really reaffirming his uh, his character, his conduct while he was there in their midst, because as is so often the case, people would try to come behind Paul and discredit him. Uh, and then in chapter 3, he just really, um, what we see here, I think, more than anywhere is the heart of a pastor, Pastor Paul and his heart for the church there in Thessalonica. And I started to uh, just do this chapter in, in one, uh, one go, but I'm going to break it up into three parts, and uh, we'll talk more about that as we go. But before we even get into that, you know, um, Pastor Bill Walden, the guy that first uh, started this church years ago, almost 30 years ago, he told me when I became the senior pastor, he said, Rob, nobody is going to care for this church or about this church as much as you do. You know, they're just not. And uh, there are certainly many people who do care deeply for this church, and they feel the, the weight and the burden of wanting to, to co-labor uh, for the good of this church. And I know my wife, she's right there with me. I mean, she feels my pains and my burdens and my joys more deeply than anybody else. And so, but at the end of the day, no one carries the weight of the, the health of the church, the good of the church like the pastor, nor should they. It would be a strange thing if there were somebody else who cared more than me, don't you think? And so that's just the, the weight of the responsibility. And I remember when I first became the senior pastor and Pastor Bill stepped into becoming my assistant pastor. And I know people were coming to him, they're like, something's very different about you, Bill. You look happy. And he's like, yeah, you know, he's like, life hasn't slowed down for me at all. But, you know, just that weight, the weight of that responsibility has been lifted off of me. And I was standing there listening to him have this conversation. And I knew exactly what he was talking about because that weight came right down on me. And I was like, man, OK, I know what he's talking about, you know, and I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but that that was a that was something I didn't really expect, honestly. And. I had another pastor friend over the course of that coming year, kind of towards um, about a year later, he was like, man, dude, he's like, over this last year, you have just been different. He said, you, you seemed, he's like, you actually seem like you're coming out of it. You seem happier now, but there was just something that, that happened to you. And I, I didn't even, I don't think I, I knew it or realized it, but I just think that that being in that new position with that responsibility and that, that burden, that concern for the church was uh, a very, very heavy one. And I didn't even realize, I think, that it was maybe showing uh, somehow. I wasn't even aware of it. And so it's real. But, you know, nobody, I don't think, knows more about that than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, experienced that, I think, more than anybody. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about all the difficulties that he experienced uh, in, his, in his ministry. 
as he was traveling from place to place, planting churches, pastoring churches, and, and receiving intense persecution. He says this, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That is 39 times he was flogged. 39 lashes, five separate times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and the wilderness and the sea among false brethren and weariness and toil, sleeplessness often and hunger and thirst, fastings often and cold and nakedness. And so he was a man who endured great difficulty and hardship in his ministry endeavors. But then he says this in verse 28, Beside all of these things... What comes upon me daily is my deep concern for the churches. That has always been so amazing to me. A man that suffered like that physically could say that really that pales in comparison to the deep abiding concern, the burden that I carry for the church. That's amazing to me. And that's what we see in chapter 3 of uh, 1 Thessalonians. We see really the profile of a pastor's heart. We see a pastor's love and concern for the church. And so if I were to outline this entire chapter, and this is the way we're going to approach it in, in the coming weeks, today we're going to look at, this would be part one. So this is concern for the well-being of the church. We're going to look at the first five verses. Concern for the well-being of the church. Next week will be celebration for the well-being of the church. Just three verses there. And then we'll wrap up the chapter the following week, and that's going to be constant prayer. Constant prayer for the well-being of the church. So we see Paul's concern. We see that Paul celebrates the church, and we see that Paul constantly prays, constantly prays for the church. And so today we're going to be looking at the first five verses. And as I said, that is Paul's concern for the well-being of the church. So why don't we read those verses together? I'll invite you to stand with me, and I'll, uh, I'll read it aloud, and um, then we will we'll dig in. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, and to encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it has happened, and you know. For, uh, for this reason, when we could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. You may be seated. And that is the word of the Lord. So, three points here in these five verses, all under the banner of Paul's concern for the well being of the church. Point number one Paul had a concern that they be established and encouraged in their faith. That was Paul's concern. Pastor Paul, he. He was very concerned that they be established and encouraged in their faith. I'll reread verse 1 to you. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our uh, fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So therefore, here in verse 1, we're still very much in the context of chapter 2. And I, a couple weeks ago, I, I did that, that great Mother's Day message, Satanic Opposition to the Work of God. Remember that? I was shocked at how many people came to me and said, that was the best Mother's Day message I have ever heard. Like, that was what I needed to hear, not some frou-frou, like, sentimental stuff. I mean, that, that gets to the heart of it, the level of warfare that is experienced uh, you know, and being a mother or a parent, uh, what have you. And so I thought, well, okay, great. You know, I really felt that was of the Lord and that was confirmed. And that's the context that we are still in. And so Paul is reaching back just a couple verses earlier here 
I'll read that to you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, it says, But we, brethren, having, having, having been, uh, been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So Paul had been taken from their midst for a time, be about five years before he made his way back to Thessalonica. And uh, he, he went right to the root, the opposition. What was it that drove him out of Thessalonica and kept him from coming back was satanic opposition. And he's kind of pointing back to that here, and he's saying, look, I want to come back. I've tried to come back. I haven't been able to, and I couldn't take it any longer. I couldn't take it any longer, so I had to send Timothy to you. I had to send our brother Timothy and he is a, a brother. He's one of us. He's faithful. He's a minister of God. He serves the Lord. And he labors in the gospel. He labors in the gospel. And I'm, I'm sending Timothy to you because I need to know what, uh, what is the status of your faith and, and that Timothy might encourage and establish, establish you. And so that's specifically what Paul is sending Timothy back there for. Paul is concerned about the, the condition of their faith. And he said, I'm going to send Timothy, one, to, to bring back a report to me, as it were, but also to encourage and to establish you. And so this word encourage, uh, it's, it's, to, it's not to push somebody along and it's not to drag them along. It's to come alongside, put your arm around them, gently, graciously, lovingly, patiently lead them along the way. And so Timothy was a qualified man to do that. Paul said, Timothy's going to come. He's going to love you. He's going to encourage you. He's going to shepherd you. And he said he's going to strengthen you. He's going to establish you. That word there, uh, sterizo, to establish, um, it means uh, to support, to plant down. It's a, a support that fixes. A lot of words here. S to set fast to firmly establish, to solidly plant, as to eliminate vacillation, back and, back and forth, back and forth. That's, his goal is to firmly fix their faith, to plant them down deep so that there is no wavering with them, no vacillation. And I was, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, I suppose you could say like a basketball goal, right? You might take a basketball goal and just put it in the dirt, and it will stand, and if some small children are playing basketball, shooting hoops, the goal might withstand that, right? It's not really grounded, though, and if you have some 300-pound athlete come along and he tries to dunk on that thing, what's going to happen? It's going to fall right over. And this is the thing in life. We don't have little kitty problems and trials and tribulations we have 300 pound men trying to slam dunk on us right i mean that that's that's the kind of trials and things that we struggle with and so what do you do with that you dig the ground out you pour concrete and you set the goal down into the concrete so that it is firmly fixed it has a solid foundation it can withstand an athlete slamming on that goal right and that's the idea Paul said, I want to send Timothy to you so that you will be established, so that you can withstand whatever comes your way. Right? You tracking with me? That makes sense? All right, that was, that was Paul's concern for the church. I need you. I want you to be established, strengthened, rooted, grounded, able to withstand difficulty, false teaching, fill in the blank. And this was what Paul tried to do everywhere that he went. In Acts chapter 14, verse 21, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. There's that word, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And so everywhere they went, that was their goal, either to plant churches and make disciples or to strengthen those disciples so that they could go deeper into their faith and be more stable in Christ. And so that was Paul's heart for the church. That was his goal. And uh, that they would be strengthened, established, so as not to waver or falter. And that is the battle for us always. Not to waver, not to falter. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there's that great text where Elijah goes to battle with the prophets of Baal. 
You may be familiar with that, uh, and I don't want to get too deep into that, but this is what Elijah says to the people. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. And that's what it boils down to. How long are we going to waver between two opinions, two worlds, uh, two competing philosophies? Uh, and, and I'll go on, but that, that is something that uh, is ever before us as Christians. We're prone to wander, prone to waver. Maybe it's just me. But I remember a pastor early on in my walk. That was the first thing I ever really remember a pastor challenging me on. He said, Rob, just stop wavering. Stop wavering. Just stay the course, man. Be faithful. And uh, we are prone to waver, and there are so many different ways in which that happens. You know, we can waver between the so-called wisdom of this world or the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world is getting crazier all the time, is it not? I mean, the stuff that is going on out there in the media and in politics, in the universities, uh, it just in the culture at large, it's getting crazier and more incoherent all the time quite honestly, and it's becoming more forceful, like we must believe these things or else. And so we have a decision to make. Are we going to believe God and God's Word and the wisdom that comes from God, or are we going to believe the so-called wisdom of the world? Which is it? Or are we going to waver between the two? We need to be established. We need to be committed that we are going to believe, obey, God's truth, God's word, over and above the so-called wisdom of this world. Or we waver between the pleasures and treasures of this world or the treasures of Christ. You know, so often we want Christ, but we really want the world too. We want everything that the world wants. And the two are, are diametrically opposed to each other. This world system, philosophy, the things that, that people die for in this world for riches, for notoriety, for pleasures galore. Uh, those are the kinds of things that the world will, will give their lives for. But we have a decision to make. Are we going to live for those things or are we going to live as unto Christ for what He says is most important and what He has called us to pursue? Are we going to waver between the uncertainty of earthly riches or for a heavenly reward? Are we going to spend all of our time here trying to amass wealth, trying to amass security and um, the, the pleasures of this, this world, or are we living for a heavenly kingdom? Are we, are we investing in that kingdom where Jesus said that the thief cannot break in and steal and, and rust and moth cannot destroy, but we are, we are living and serving and investing in another kingdom? Or is it this kingdom right here? Right here. Are we building our kingdom on earth or are we working towards building God's kingdom on earth and storing up treasures in heaven. You know, we waver between being pulled by an ever-changing culture. I mean, and it is changing so rapidly, you just can't keep up with it, right? Am I, is it just me? or is, I mean, you can't keep up with the whims of this world and the ever-changing culture. But there's one thing that never changes, and that is God and His truth. And the world demands that God, His truth must be updated. Okay, that's outdated. And so God has to progress, and God's Word has to get with the times. And so are we going to fall for that, or are we going to stand on the anchor of God's Word in an ever-changing culture? See, we have a never-changing God with everlasting truth. Amen? And so we waver between these things. Trusting God's goodness, no matter what, or allowing circumstances to dictate what we think about God. We waver in that area so often. When it's all good, man, God is good and He loves me. And I love Him. But then when things start to go bad, when things start to go sideways, maybe God's not good. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God's punishing me. You ever, you ever thought that, felt that, struggled with that? Well, we cannot waver between those two opinions, folks. To be established and strengthened in the faith, we know and trust that God is good no matter what. And no matter what happens in our lives, it's for our good. And it's for God's glory. And that's not easy. That takes maturity to be able to walk in that, 
in that way? Are we going to trust Christ as the most important and all-sufficient one, or are we going to look for more? You know, we waver between those two. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough to save us? Is Christ enough to satisfy the weary, the weary soul? Is Christ enough? He said, if you drink of this water that I will give you, you'll never thirst again. Out of your hearts are going to flow rivers of living water. Torrents of water will gush forth from your innermost being. Or do we look to drink from broken cisterns, as Jeremiah says? We have to decide. Are we going to trust God's inspired revelation, the, the Word of God, or are we going to look to other sources? And that's, that's just such a common battle for Christians to this day. You know, I don't want to keep picking on Jesus calling. I, I talked about that a few months ago because it's just a real relevant, it's a, it's a great uh, illustration of what I'm talking about. That is such a huge seller in the church. And some people got upset with me for even bringing that up and kind of speaking ne negatively against this devotional, Jesus Calling. But it's been scrubbed from the, from the opening portions of the book, but if you can find one of the original copies, the, the lady that wrote that talked about how she loved the Word of God, but she longed for more. She needed more. And so she sat down with a pen and began to write, and God just began to give her fresh revelation new revelation. And so in that book, she's talking from Jesus's perspective, and it just, I don't know about you folks, but that just don't sound like the Jesus of the Bible to me talking. Something's very off there. And see, that's what we do. We waver between the sufficiency of God's Word, or do we have to go look for all of these other books out there, the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of Thomas, or some other type of religion, and mix-mash the two, or more revelation, because God's revelation isn't enough. See, we waver between these kinds of things. And that was what Paul was trying to fight against. He, he didn't want that for the church. He, he wanted them to pursue holiness, and not to waver between holiness and rank idolatry. Right? And we do that too. Idolatry is when you worship something over and above God Himself. And it's been said that the heart is an idol-making factory. And so we gotta, we're always wavering between these two things. Is God alone our God, or do we look to other gods? Things that are not gods at all, but we put them in God's rightful place. And so if we're going to be established, if we're going to be strengthened in the faith, then we know where we must stand on these issues. And we know that we must fight against the tendency to waver and to wander. Amen? That was Paul's concern for that church. That was his pastoral concern, that they would be established and strengthened in the faith. Well, Paul has another concern here, point two. Paul was concerned that they not be shaken by afflictions and tribulation. Paul was concerned that they not be shaken by affliction and tribulation. Verse 3, he says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. So Paul says that none of you would be shaken. That word literally is to wag the tail, to wag the tail, and it means to be moved or disturbed. And Paul said, I don't want you to be shaken, I don't want you to be moved, I don't want you to be disturbed, specifically by afflictions, Paul says. I don't want you to be moved by affliction. This word affliction here, it's pressure. It's pressure, and it, the idea is to be boxed in, pushed into a corner, and there's nowhere else to go, uh, to be hemmed in. And then this creates a pressure to escape, to run. And so essentially what Paul is saying here, do not allow the, the pressure of affliction and hardship to hem you in. Don't allow that opposition to cause you to depart from the truth, to revert back from where you have come, from where God saved you, because that's a real temptation. We get going, we're excited about God, we're, we're loving the Lord, and then difficulty comes, affliction comes. And we say, oh man, I didn't sign up for this. And what is the temptation? To go back, to go back from where God has saved us. And that happens. And so Paul is trying to warn and encourage them, don't do that. Don't let affliction 
drive you back because this was exactly what was happening in, in the church there in the, the letter of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? How are we going to escape? There is no other way. Salvation is in Christ alone. And I know that it's hard, and I know that you guys are suffering and struggling, but if you leave, if you divert back, if you depart from the truth, where else will you go? There is no other way. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation that has been secured for us in Christ? And so that's what Paul is trying to say to those in Thessalonica. Look, I don't want you to be shaken by affliction. I don't want you to try to leave or go back. There's nothing else to go back to. And then Paul says, furthermore, you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. That word is destined. We were destined for this. He said, we told you when we were with you that we would suffer. This is what we signed up for. With the full knowledge that it was not going to be easy. In fact, it was going to be crushing. You know, how did Paul endure all of those sufferings that I mentioned to you earlier in the, in the message, uh, well, when, when God called Paul, he said to him, I must show you the things that you're going to suffer. So Paul knew full well, full disclosure. He knew it was going to be hard, and he counted the cost, and he followed Christ right into the storm, right into the storm, and he never turned back. And Paul says, you guys know, this was not a surprise. This was not a shocker. We told you that this was coming. And now you have seen for yourselves that what we said is true because you're right in the midst of it. You're experiencing it. And it's funny how, it's funny how we can know something and be okay with it until it happens. And then it happens, and all of a sudden, we can almost like romanticize things. Oh, it's going to be hard, but Jesus, I will follow you. And then when the hardship comes, we're singing like the temptations. And I'm like, ah, I don't know, I can't do this. And that's, that's how it is. But the reality is, Paul made it clear, we know what we signed up for. It's not easy. It's hard. You've been warned. Don't act surprised. But what I really want to draw your attention to here is what Paul appeals to. He appeals to what they know. He appeals to what they know. He said, guys, you knew this already. You knew this. We told you. It was clear. And that is huge for the Christian, folks. It is what we know. It's what we know, not how we feel. Can I repeat that? It's what we know, not how we feel. I'll challenge you in this coming week to try to pay attention to how many times you say, I feel like. I mean, it's impossible to stop. We had a, uh, a guest pastor at a men's conference a few years ago, and he was talking about that. And um, from the from the pulpit here and but then we were hanging out afterwards and he just kept pointing it out every time I was saying it was really getting on my nerves and I picked him up the next day after the conference and I was like man I just feel like that was such a good conference and he was like you felt like and I'm like ah and so I ever since then I can't stop and we all do it I feel like I feel like what you're saying to me when you said that made me feel like and it's like, what, what do you think, what do you believe, what do you know, not what do you feel, right? Because feelings can be deceiving. In fact, feelings are deceiving, dece uh, deceiving and we are easily shaken by our feelings. Are we not? Easily shaken by them. Now, the, the church there in Thessalonica, they could have interpreted all of this to mean God's blessings were God's, God was absent, and so were His blessings. And they could have, they could have just really let their fear and, and doubt, perhaps, uh, get, get control of them. But what kept them going is what they knew, what Paul had made crystal clear to them. And so they knew this was part of the deal, and they, they were able to rise above the fear and the doubt based on what they knew. Feelings are incredibly powerful, and we can be led astray by them. We can be led astray by our feelings because they are powerful. They do control us if we let them, and we must not do that. We have to control our feelings. 
uh, at least to the best of our ability. This is why we sing and we preach about what Christ has done. Because that, that's really the crux of it, folks, and that's where we have to live. What has Christ done for us? It's not so much what we do for Him, but what is already done in Christ for us. That is fixed. That never changes. And that is a firm foundation upon, we must, upon which we must live our lives. Everything we do comes from that place. The solid foundation of who Christ is and what He has done. I'll just give you an example. When you are tempted to doubt God's love or His goodness... Maybe you're having an off day and you don't, you don't feel like you're close to the Lord. And maybe God doesn't love you. You go back to the cross. And the cross reminds us that God demonstrated this love that we can never, ever fathom outside of the cross. That in, while we were enemies, God sent His Son to die for us and to pay for our sins, and to bring us into relationship with Himself. God did that. God paid that price. And God did it when we were at our ugliest. And so that's the kind of love that we have in Christ. That's the kind of love that was demonstrated at the cross. And that's what we know. Amen? So when you're tempted to think somehow that God doesn't love you because you haven't kept your list as well today as you did yesterday, God's love hasn't changed. God's love, love hasn't changed at all. You know what has changed is your feelings. That's what changes, our feelings. And they change minute by minute. But God is never changing. God remains the same. And God's love is fixed. It is super abundant. And it abounds because that is who God is. God is love. And so God has purposed that He would pour out His love upon us because He is loving not because we are deserving, and if we're honest with ourselves, we never were or ever will be deserving, yet somehow we start thinking that, uh, well, hey, I'm having a good day today. I'm in the zone. I'm feeling good. God loves me. And then the next day, maybe not so much. And so that's being led astray by our feelings. And so we have to be so very careful about that. And so uh, we cannot be shaken by affliction we cannot be shaken by hardship and tribulation. We cannot be shaken by feelings and emotions and doubts, so on and so forth. And that was a real concern for Paul there. He says, look, I want you guys to be strengthened and established in your faith. I do not want you to be shaken or moved by affliction or tribulation. You have to stand upon the anchor, the anchor of the truth of Christ. And that's just as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago, is it not? We still must stand upon what Christ has done for us. And then this brings us to our third point, final point. Paul had a concern that they not be tempted by the tempter. That they not be tempted by the tempter. Verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. So Paul said, for this reason, and that is for fear that they were shaken by their afflictions. That was a real fear, a real concern for Paul. And he said, furthermore, our labor might have come to nothing. Perhaps there's nothing left there to show for our, our work in, in your midst. He said, so I sent to know your faith. I sent Timothy so that I could know, is your faith still intact? And is the church still standing? And I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people. Is the family of God there in that town still together? Is the church still standing? He said, in case you had been tempted by the tempter. And the idea here is to be derailed. The train has gone off the tracks that Satan, that, that tempter, has, has tested you to the point where you, you were broken and you, you turned away. Paul was so afraid of that. And so he said, I sent Timothy to you to find out for me how you guys were doing. And so I want to take a little bit of time just to talk about this because this is, this is very real. It was real then and it's real now. And this is a very real pastoral concern that we be not led astray or tempted by Satan, by the tempter. And the idea here 
is to be drawn away, to be lured away, to be enticed. See, Satan, he does not tempt us just to annoy us. Sometimes I think we, we kind of treat it like that. He tempts us to destroy us. You understand? He, the temptations are a means to an end, and Satan is trying to take us out. And so temptation is a very real part of that. He wants to, he wants to draw you away. He wants to lure you out. And that's exactly what we see in James chapter 1, verse 13. We see that same language there. And James says, Let no one say when he's tempted that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God is not the author of temptation. God cannot be tempted, and God does not tempt other people. So you got to know that. He says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so this drawn away, it's like casting, casting a, a fishing rod out and reeling it in. And as the, the lure is coming, the fish sees it, and he's following it. And then he, he latches on to the bait, and then you got him, and you reel him in. And that's the idea. You're being lured away, and then you bite the bait, and then it's over. You've been caught, and you've been taken out. And that's the idea here. And the end of those things is death. We cannot play around with sugarcoat, minimize sin and its effects, okay? It's deadly serious. And so Satan seeks to lure us, to tempt us, and destroy us ultimately. And that's the idea here. Paul was so afraid that perhaps that had happened to them, that perhaps they had been tempted by the tempter. And you know, Satan tempts in a variety of ways, and he uses various means. And in some ways, it's all the same. There's nothing new under the sun. But at the same time, I feel like, like he tempts us and, and he knows what my struggles are. He knows what yours are and yours are and yours. And he is going to have just, just crafted, well-crafted temptation that is just your unique flavor, right? He knows where your weaknesses are. And, and just side note, I don't believe Satan is everywhere at one time. He's not God. He's not on God's level. Only God is omnipresent. But we do believe that there are spiritual forces innumerable at Satan's disposal. And, you know, this in some ways is a mystery to us, but we know that they are everywhere, all around the world. It's pervasive. They're aggressive. And spiritual warfare is, is real. And so when I talk about Satan, in a sense, I'm talking about all of, all of his his minions, demons, spiritual uh, uh, warfare in, in general in that way. So, just side note. So, temptation. This was a real concern for Paul. This was a pastoral concern there. Now, what does that look like for us? You know, how, how does Satan tempt? Being aware of, of the schemes of the enemy... Well, he tempts us in all sorts of sinful behaviors and practices. And, you know, that's not, you know, we tend to think, okay, well, you got drug addiction. That's really bad. You got murder. You got, you know, those kinds of things. But my stuff, you know, not, not so bad. That's not true, though. In the heart of God, it's all heinous. And so whether it is rebelliousness, whether it is pride, whether it is gossip and slander, whether it is lying or stealing or cheating or violence, uh, whatever it, it may be, it's, it's someone somewhere struggles with these kinds of things and Satan is trying always to trip you up into that sin. And so whether it be sins of the mind, thoughts, sins of speech, sins of action, sins of commission or sins of omission, you should have done something and you didn't. Satan is always working to try to tempt us to that end. He's seeking to tempt us to discouragement. He would love nothing more than to see us just quit, give up, be discouraged, defeated, deflated. And Satan works overtime to do that to God's people. To tempt us to doubt God to doubt his, his, God Himself, to doubt His existence, His goodness, and even our salvation. 
So often the enemy is working overtime to that end. He would tempt us that our worship would be diverted from God to other things, to lesser things, to take our devotion away from God and to put it on other things. And isn't that what he did even to Jesus in the temptation? He said, look, just fall, fall down and worship me. Worship me and I'll give you all of these things. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do that. I'll give you the world right now. Just fall down and worship me. You know, that, that's how the tempter was seeking to tempt Jesus. Why are you hungry? God's not good. He's not providing for you. Why don't you just turn these rocks into bread and uh, supply your own needs, meet your own needs, be self-sufficient, right? You're the son of God. Don't people know who you are? Throw yourself off the building. God's angels will bear you up, and then the whole world is going to know. You don't have to put up with that. People are treating you this way. You're the son of God. You're the king. People should recognize that. So that's, that's the kind of temptations that Satan was throwing at Jesus, but he overcame. But the tempter, he's the same, and he, tr he tries to tempt us in the same ways. He tries to separate us and isolate us. He would, he would want to lure us away from the body of Christ, from fellowship, from community. That's something that I've seen him do and be quite successful at over this past year. It's a grievous thing, a grievous thing to see. But, but Satan has been quite, quite victorious to that end in this past year. He wants to rob us of our joy and peace. He doesn't want to see a joyful Christian, a joy-filled Christian, a peaceful Christian. He would have us be bound up in sin and iniquity and, and loss of joy and peace. He wants to hinder our, our growth and our maturity. We're so stuck in sin. We're so stuck in doubt. We're so stuck in the past that we're not moving forward in Christ and going deeper into the things of Christ. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants to destroy the family. Satan wants to destroy the family. And he, there's been a full-on assault against the family unit in this culture. And Satan is right at the core of that. Because God instituted the family. Amen? And so Satan's been coming after the family. He wants to destroy and split churches. He wants to render us ineffective. He wants to render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. Take you out of the game. He can't take your salvation so he wants to tempt you to sin so that you are ineffective for the kingdom of God. He wants to destroy our testimony and he wants to bring reproach on the name of Christ. That's his goal. That's, his, that's, that's what he is working towards. Okay, and so just being aware of these things, recognizing that temptation is real and the tempter is real and he's working hard to try to take us out. 2 Corinthians 2.11 states that we're not ignorant to Satan's devices. We know these things, okay? We know these things. And so knowing these things, Ephesians 4.27 says we're not to give place to the devil. Don't give him an opportunity to get in. Don't give him a foothold, as it were. Don't give him an opportunity to get in and just to begin to, to tear apart and divide and conquer and turn and tempt. And I've been, he's been doing that over the last year in so many churches around the world, honestly. And so we... We're not ignorant of his schemes and devices. We are to be intentional about not giving place to the devil. And then James chapter 4 says uh, in verse 7 that you know we're to draw near to God and God will draw near to us. We're to resist the devil and he will flee. Okay, so it's not enough to just be aware. Okay, I, we know he's, he's there and we know what he's doing, but we got to do something about it. One, we're not ignorant. Two, we don't give him opportunity. And three, we draw near to God. Because you're just no match for Satan, and neither am I. I get really concerned when I hear people talking smack, like what they're going to do to Satan, right? And, uh, okay, have fun with that. I'm going to run to God and let God do, do that, all right? And so that's the idea. We draw near to God. God draws near to us. We resist Satan, and he flees. Okay, so... There's the solution to temptation. Ultimately, it lies in drawing near to God and looking unto Christ, the author and the finisher, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our hope, our confidence is in Christ. Our victory and salvation, it is in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. There's the good news. 
as much as this reflects Paul's heart for the church, it pales in comparison to the heart of God. This is amazing to me. This is the heart of, of the, the Apostle Paul, the, you know, the pastor, really, of this church. But God's heart, it, it's so much greater uh, in, in this way. You know, so much greater. Consider the love of the Good Shepherd for His flock. The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd laid down His life for the sheep. Jesus paid the highest price for His church. He gave His life. He died for her. He washed her and cleansed her and made her brand new and spotless. That is the love of the Good Shepherd for the church. You see, Jesus alone has ultimate stability. He never wavered. He never faltered between two opinions. He alone stayed the course. Jesus endured the most severe of afflictions, yet He was not moved or shaken. He did not fail. And Jesus was tempted by the tempter beyond our ability to conceive, but He didn't sin. He didn't sin. He stayed the course. See, Jesus did all of these things perfectly. Jesus was all of these things perfectly. And we have Christ. We have Him. We have Jesus, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We have Christ, and that is our hope. That is our strength. That is our joy. That is our security. That is our assurance. And the reality is, even when we fail in these things, and we do and we will, Christ died for our inability even in that. Christ died for our inability even in these things. Because we waver between opinions. We are shaken by affliction. We are tempted and we fail. But Christ did not. Christ died even for those things. Christ did what we could not do and died for our failures to do those things. That is amazing to me. And if you have Christ, you have all that you need for life and godliness. That's what Second Peter says. We have all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, through relationship with Him, as we live life with Christ, you know, as we commune with Him. And that is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not growing and maturing. The goal of the Christian life is communion with the triune God, fellowship, relationship with God in Christ. And as we behold His glory in the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we are transformed. We behold and we become. Amen? And so that, therein lies the secret, brothers and sisters. If we want to be strong, if we want to withstand affliction, if we want to overcome temptation, look upon Christ. Run to Him. Be with Him. Cling to Him. Worship Him. Serve and obey Him. Trust Him. Love Him. We sing of His goodness. We tell of His goodness. We read of Him in the Word of God. We pray to Him. We fellowship with each other. We acknowledge Him in all of our ways. We must be with Him if we have any hope to be able to stay the course in these things. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. But if you do not have Christ, you need Him. If you don't have Him, you need Him. You must have Him. Without Him, you have nothing. But you know what? You have everything to gain. Everything to gain. And so if you don't know Christ today, confess to Him. Say, Jesus, I need You. I have sinned. I have fallen short of God's standards and I know it. Jesus, would You please forgive me and cleanse me? And He will. He will. He will forgive you. He will wash you. Ask Him, save me. Save me from wrath. Save me. Make me a child of God. And He will. He will. Turn from your sinful ways to Christ in love, and He will receive you in love. Today is the day of salvation. You must have Christ. You need Him. And for the Christian, if we are going to be able to stay the course and be established, strengthened, unshakable, overcoming temptation, it's only in Christ. It's only as we gaze upon His beauty, as we seek to be with Him and in community and fellowship, and so, that's my prayer for us.
That's my heart to you as a pastor, but that's God's heart to you as a loving Heavenly Father and as Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who died for the flock. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise your holy name. We thank you that you've been so very good to us. We thank you that you saved us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you filled us with your Holy Spirit and that you are continuing to lead us in the good way and that you will see us through to the very end. Though we may fall, we may be shaken, we may be tempted, Lord, you never let us go. You pick us back up. You come alongside us. You don't push us. You don't drag us. You gently encourage us along the way as a good shepherd. I pray for anyone in this room today who doesn't know you, they haven't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that today, right where they sit, right moment in their heart and in their mind, God, they would make, it, make up their mind that they want you and that they need you and that they need your forgiveness and that they need your healing and that they need your love and that you will be their Lord and that they will follow you, turning away from the old life and turning to the new life in Christ. We praise you, Lord, and I just pray, Father, for this church. God, would you pour your spirit out, pour out blessing, pour out love, pour out mercy, pour out provision. There are hurting people in our midst, struggling, weak, fearful, worried. Many have suffered loss, God. Many are right in a very deep and dark place. God, in your kindness and your your love and your goodness, would you meet them right where they are at and fill them, Lord. Fill their hearts. Revive them. Revive them, Lord. Strengthen them. I pray for this coming week, God, that you would go with them, that you would bless them and lead them in the good way. We worship you, Father. We praise you. We honor you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.